Welcome back to another episode of Trades Talk. I'm here with my co-host, Maggie. How are you doing today, Maggie? I'm doing great, Justin. I'm so amped up from our conversation we just had with Cam and David from Par 3 Landscape out in Vegas. You know, I'm going to be out in Vegas here in the next couple of weeks and um, always a great time talking to them. Justin, why was it so important for us to to bring Cam and David on a Trades Talk? So Maggie, I'm going to peer group with Cam and David, actually, which has been a fantastic experience for the last couple of years. And they don't share any of their data as far as they don't register on the top 100 or the top 150 on the big landscape magazines. They're kind of flying under the radar, but they are a big name in Vegas. And if you've ever talked to anyone in Vegas or have done landscaping in Vegas, you're going to know about par three. But outside of Vegas, they just aren't well known and they have such an amazing methodology on how they operate their company. They're a people first company. They've grown very rapidly, but also they've been around for a long time. They started in 1995 and it's a multi-generational story, which I think the listeners are going to find very fascinating. Yeah, they, they're a very employee centric organization. They do some unique things as far as training courses, not only regarding the company, but around how to make their employees better humans as a whole. And we talk about those during today's episode, their unique benefits package. You know, we talk about their 401k match, which is incredible and just truly lead by example and do what they say and say what they do. So I think we should just dive in and not leave people hanging it much longer. What do you say, Justin? Let's jump into this episode with Cam and David. All right. We're so excited for today's guests on Trade Stock. We have with us today Cam and David with Par 3 Landscape in the Vegas market. Cam, David, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Why don't you give us a little bit of a, a history, kind of introduce our listeners to who you are and, and what you do out there. Cam, why don't you go first? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's a, a pleasure to be on. Um, so my name is Cam, Brian. I'm uh, the CEO of Par3. Um, we've been operating in Vegas since 1995. And I came into a family business that was a um, successful business by the time I got into it. They'd already been operating for 10, 11 years. And I was really good friends with the owner, Paul Jaramillo, who is David's father. And I came to Vegas for a completely different career. I was in law school, always wanted to be a prosecutor, um, had an internship in Las Vegas that I absolutely loved. I was um, involved in a really uh, intriguing uh, murder trial and uh, decided to come here instead of go, go back to Southern California where my family's from and uh, moved to Vegas and immediately met uh, Paul Jaramillo. So worked uh, in the DA's office for a number of years almost five. And the entire time I was spending a lot of time with the Jaramillo family, uh, Paul, primarily the kids were young at the time. So we were, we were skiing together. We were going to the lake together. We were riding mountain bikes together. And all that time, uh, with Paul, he was asking if, you know, if I wanted to be a lawyer forever, if I wanted to, uh, work for the DA's office forever, suggested that we ought to go into business together at some point. And about, Five years into that, uh, I decided to come over and start working for Par 3 um, and have been there ever since. I always knew that I wanted to be uh, a trial lawyer for the first part of my career, but never anticipated being uh, a longtime 
career lawyer just uh, is a profession that I'm not necessarily uh, with, at least on the civil side. I really liked being a prosecutor. I thought there was um, a lot of fun in that job, a lot of nobility kind of uh, seeking justice and, and making a difference in a community. But um, the rest of the law really didn't intrigue me at all. I, I don't like the law. I don't like the I mean, I don't like the law. I mean, everybody likes the law, I guess, to some extent. But, but uh, I just don't like the the kind of culture around lawyers. I don't like the way that uh, the compensation is structured, billing by the hour. I think it leads to poor results. I think it leads to um, to poor resolutions. I, I don't think that um, it's something that I was just cut out for. And so I always wanted to go into business and do something. And, and part three was actually a great fit. I was uh, I worked on. Uh, farms growing up a little bit when I was a teenager. I, I had a, a lawn mowing route. Never thought that it would be something that I would do long term. But um, but when kind of I got to know Paul and and saw the type of business that he had um, built and and the good people he had working around him, it seemed like an easy decision. So um, that's how I got into it. I've been uh, there for the last say seventeen years now. So. It's been, it's been awesome all the way through. Really cool. And I know um, you had mentioned a couple of times, you know, the the name, the family, and I know it's a big name in the Vegas market, David, and you get to to carry that name on a daily basis. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on the Duramo, did I say that correctly? Duramo, Duramo family. Duramo, yeah. <laughs> yeah let, let me jump in real quick there. The first time I, so I met these guys in church and the first time I heard their name, somebody said, Hey, it's, this is so-and-so Jaramillo. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe they're butchering their name like that. I thought that they just couldn't say Jaramillo, like you would pronounce a normal, like Hispanic last name. And I was, I was just feeling for the poor guy that was staying at Jaramillo. Well, it turns out that it actually is Jaramillo. It's just the, the anglicized version of Jaramillo, um, which is, you know, their family has been in the States for, I don't know, four or five generations. And, and you go back into like the 20s 30s 40s and it just wasn't uh it was more common for people to try and assimilate and have your your last name either be changed or sound more american and so they were using the uh the the bastardized version of jaramillo (laughs) that's a great story yeah i always butcher it so i I, i'm just going to say david j why don't you give us a little bit of background on the family and and your introduction to the the company yeah, thanks uh, for having us on. Um, it's going to be a pleasure to chat with you guys. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll probably start more towards the beginning when my family got to Las Vegas. It was a small town back then. It was in the 1940s when they started doing landscaping, um, had a nursery, like retail garden center, all things landscape, right? So uh, my great grandfather, his name was Abe. He, he kind of started this whole thing. Um, there's been a lot of offshoots of, of different companies that extended family have, have done, but it seems like the Jaramillo family in Las Vegas has just always done landscaping. Um, and I think in the forties, there's only around 10,000 people in the Valley and now we're over 2 million. So there's been a lot of growth over the years. Um, my dad worked with my grandfather, uh, the company is called Las Vegas fertilizer and they, they grew that over a number of years and sold it to a national company. Um, a couple of years before that, my dad, Paul, started Par 3 um, with a couple 
high school friends uh, or one high school friend and and a guy they knew through uh, just the landscape community in Las Vegas. And they started Par 3 just with a couple of crews. It was kind of a side project for my dad at the time because he was working full-time at Las Vegas Fertilizer. After that sold, he really dedicated all of his time and energy and resources into growing Par 3. Um, so that started in 1995. Um, I was just a little kid at the time. 31 years old now. Um, I've been with the company for seven years full-time. I went to BYU, got a degree in finance, and always knew that I wanted to end up in Las Vegas and working with Par 3. I didn't anticipate it would it would be right out of college. Uh, my plan was to go work on Wall Street for a couple years, do investment banking, get some private equity experience, and then kind of bring all that back to Las Vegas. Um, in around 2012, uh, Paul was diagnosed with ALS. It's kind of a similar disease to Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Um, fortunately, it hasn't progressed um, very quickly and he's doing he's doing quite well, um, but he's not able to talk or walk anymore. He, he still comes into the office, still um, really runs the strategy behind the business, um, but he's been very good at, at turning things over to Cam and me um, to run the operations and has empowered us over the years. So I've been back for seven years. Um, Cam and I have essentially been running the day-to-day the -day operations um, for the past few years. And, and that transition has actually worked out beautifully. I think it's it's been a successful transition. I know that generational businesses can be difficult, but I think that we're managing to do a good job of it. Yeah, David, thanks for that intro. I can definitely relate to in terms of generational transition and working with others as you move from founder to a more professional operation. So two-part question here for you, David, I'll stick with you is first, can you give us a little idea of the size of par three, you know, maybe how many employees or annual revenue you guys do. And then secondly, can you talk a little bit about that transition and how you and Cam are able to partner and continue to grow par three not only in the last few years, but also going forward. Maybe talk a little bit about that transition and that partnership you guys have. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, your first question about the size of Par 3, it's funny, um, you know, the company has, it's always been a pretty decent sized company. We've grown a lot over the last, you know, five, 10 years. Um, part of the transitional discussion is a bit of a, a difference in ideology on, uh, you know, we've never really liked being in the, in the limelight. We're, we're not listed on Lawn and Landscape Top 100 or anything like that. Uh, we've never really done a ton of marketing. Um, so, so this is kind of new to us to say, hey, this is how much revenue we do. This is how big our operation is. Um, but we're on track to do just shy of 50 million this year in total revenue uh, with a, a little over 500 employees. Um, we're having really good year-over-year -year growth um, on the maintenance side, and that, as you guys know, leads to a lot of upsell work through irrigation enhancements and and everything else. So, um, yeah, the plan is to continue to to grow it. David, yeah. real quick before you continue, I just want to say congratulations on that growth and that size of a company. You guys do run definitely under the radar, and I appreciate you sharing coming on the podcast and sharing some of your guys' <laughs> secrets with with us and the guests today. So. Well, I'm I'm really excited to dive in and and yeah, give us a little idea of of how you guys operate day to day. Um, yeah, so 
Kind of back to your, your previous question on the transition, I think this is kind of key to how we operate now. Um, I think when, when the company was, you know, maybe $10, $20 million in revenue and you have direct owner involvement um, with every major customer, you know, most of your employees, um, it's really easy to be able to be like guarded with your numbers, right? Because you're able to manage all of that um, through one office or through the founders and the owners. As we've grown, um, we've transitioned to being much more transparent with our numbers um, through tools like Aspire and, and letting everyone see the profitability, the gross margin, labor rates, all those things. I think that's the only way that we're, uh, we have been able to grow to the size that, that we are now and we continue um, to, to work on fine tuning our reporting and things like that. So everyone can manage their own book of work and we can scale because of that. Day-to-day um, -day operations with my finance background. Uh, so my title is president and CFO. I came in and, and uh, replaced a, a lady named Nancy Eaton who had worked with my family for, uh, gosh, I guess I would be the, the fourth, let's see, Abe, George. Yeah, I'd be the fourth generation that, she uh she was the CFO for um for Abe for for George for Paul and for me so she trained me up and uh, she was ready to retire so I took over the the financial role initially when I came into part three and um and Cam was the COO and really managed the operations as well as any legal issues that that arose um I would say now we've kind of blended those things together uh, where. I'm my still my core responsibilities are still on the financial side, um, but Cam and I work very very well together on the operational side. Yeah, and I had the pleasure of being in a peer group with both uh, you and Cam, and it has been uh, wow! It's been a learning opportunity for me to see how you guys work together. I've got a brother and a partner in the business along with my dad and and my sister and cousin there's five owners in total but really my brother and I have to you know work on this this dance if you will where we're supporting each other while also challenging each other and showing this united front to the company on a publicly facing perspective but behind closed doors we have to you know challenge each other to push the limit and make sure we're going in the right direction so David, how do you and Cam stay on the same page, especially in such a fast-growing company with so many employees and, and so much interactions? How do you guys stay on the same page on strategy and direction? So I think we just both feel very lucky. I mean, from a young age, you know, we have a bit of an age gap, but when I was a teenager, even uh, Cam and I were, were great friends and would go on trips together and mountain bike together and go skiing and we've always had a, a, a very good friendship that you wouldn't expect given our age difference. And, you know, Cam was just in Italy on the peer group trip and I wasn't able to go. And when he came back, uh, we had a little talk about this where I, I, I just feel very lucky. And I think Cam feels the same way that, you know, 95% of the time we're going to probably come to the same conclusion and we're going to make the same decision whether we're including each other in every little decision or, or if we're not. Um, and it really feels like a, a bit of a superpower we have because when we're both working together, we get a lot done. If Cam's out of the office or I'm out of the office, I think we just have a lot of inherent trust in each other that, that we're going to make the right decision. Um, 
And I think we do give each other the courtesy of if, if there's something important, uh, we're going to talk about it, but I can count on, you know, one hand over seven years when I've disagreed with, with, uh, a decision that Cam wants to make and probably vice versa. Yeah, that's great. The fact that you guys are in such alignment is just a testimony to how successful the company has been. And Cam, one of the things that you mentioned during your introduction was that you noticed instantly with working with Paul that the the culture of the company was something to be desired. So over time, during transitional change of generational change, how have you guys maintained that culture? And ultimately, um, from an outsider's perspective, I would say improved that culture. One of the things I, I just in discussion with you guys, I know that you pretty much may uh, retain all of your management employees. And so how do you guys deal with culture, create that culture, maintain that culture throughout the organization? So I would say we, we do that really uh, naturally. Um, there's, there's no, tricks there's nothing that we've learned in books there's there's really no um no secret sauce i would say as to our culture because i i just don't think we're doing anything different than what paul did when he started the business he just surrounded himself with the best people he could find and he treated them super well and when we make hiring decisions it's funny like when when initially when i was uh, part of the interviewing process and hiring people, I would get uh, resumes, I would call references, I would do everything I could, all the kind of standard things that you would you would expect to do in the interview process. Um, and as time went on, the the more I cared about what kind of connection I had with the person when I interviewed them, and what I, I felt in my gut about what their character was like, what their integrity was like, what their honesty was like, what their work ethic was like. And the rest of the stuff just became less and less important. So if you find a really good person who likes to work, they're going to be a great fit in this culture. Um, we're not workaholics. We're, we're family first people. And, and every chance we get to hire somebody who's who is a great person it doesn't matter if they have a background uh in golf or in we have a sommelier we have former mechanics we have people that came out of out of um uh general business jobs we have people that came out of uh computer related backgrounds um all working in the landscape industry that didn't know anything about this business when they started, but they knew that, that they wanted to work for a guy like Paul. Um, they knew that the people that were working here were good people at their core. Um, and that's, that's our litmus test is uh, what kind of person are you when, um, when nobody's watching, when, yeah. um, when, it doesn't matter whether or not you uh, are chasing a contract or trying to make something right for a customer. Um, you know, if, if that person really is always trying to do the right thing, they're going to be a great fit here. And once you get here, you're surrounded by people like that yeah. and, um, and you want to stay there. And so I don't think there's any, anything magical about what we're doing with uh, compensation. We're not doing anything a whole lot different in, uh, in the way that we're looking for certain employees, um, we're just simply following the recipe of finding the very best people that we can, and, and we can train the rest. 
Yeah. I feel like first off that, that sommelier was a strategic hire. Um, personally, I think that was a, a probably is a smart hire on your, point, but, <laughs> um, but from, ultimately, from sommelier to safety manager. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's a unique transition, but, um, but I think that you say you aren't doing anything unique and, Personally, as someone who's been to your office multiple times and, and worked around your team, from an outsider's perspective, the one thing I can say that you guys do differently is you lead by example. Every single day you're working just as hard as those alongside of you. There's a lot of humility, a lot of selflessness in your office, and you feel that as soon as you walk in. And I think that you guys should give yourselves a little bit more credit for that because um, <laughs> I've been to quite a few landscape shops in my day and not all of them um, lead by example such as you do so uh, that's nice of you to say thanks <clears throat> cam i want to stick with you on this and dig just a, just a little bit more into this idea of employee retention and it seems like there's when i talk to other companies there's a lot of excuses as to why employees leave their companies and we could obviously sit here and name them all but instead i just want to ask you this question is what do you guys do that's just in your inherent nature? It seems like this idea of employee retention and building a strong culture isn't something that is really different or going way outside the box. Like you guys aren't Google offering nap pods and you know free espressos all day, but you do something I think that's <laughs> <laughs> that's just hard to put your finger on. And I, I want to dig a little bit more into that and just see when you interact with people, Cam, that is when you interact with people, you know, what is it that you're looking to accomplish in those conversations as the CEO of the company, when you're talking to whether it's, you know, someone in the field, all the way up to your vice presidents, what's your motivation? What's your, what's your goal after a conversation when you talk with an employee? So I think the, uh, I mean, the easy answer is that we are people we are people, people first, if that makes sense. I'm a people person and, <laughs> and um, the strategy comes second, the, the operations and the, and the logistics come third and fourth, like at my core, I'm a people person and I care about people naturally. Um, and so in those conversations, I want somebody to feel recognized. I want them to be heard. I want them to, to feel like they're, contributing to the success of the team. Um, and I want them to know that I genuinely care about them. I'm their friend, um, regardless of what's happening uh, uh, in the workday. And I feel like I want to be a resource to them anytime they have uh, any issue, whether that's work-related or personal. So, um, you know, fortunately, I've had opportunities um, since the day I got here to help people on the legal side of things. I'm, you know, Everybody thinks that if you're a lawyer, you know everything about the law. I mean, usually you know like a tiny little segment of the law where you've practiced in. And for me, that was criminal law. But um, everybody has this assumption that I know about family law and about contracts and about all this other stuff. And so I've I've had tons of people come to me over the years, and I just I look it up, I call friends, I I fake it, I do whatever I can to try and to try and help people with issues, and then of course you want to be a, a huge support for people um, in the workplace. So it's really easy, unfortunately, for a CEO or a president or a COO to get things done that maybe a field manager or an account manager can't do. 
um, just by virtue of the title. And it's uh, a shame that a customer will take my word as the CEO over an account manager's word when we're saying exactly the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. But that's just kind of the nature of, of uh, it's just human nature that they think if they, they get a hold of somebody that has a, uh, an important title, then, then they're going to uh, feel like they're, they're being taken care of. And so I'm more than happy to do that for all of our employees to kind of step in and into any difficult situation where they just need somebody to back them up. And, and I want my people to feel like that it doesn't matter what decision they make, they're going to have our support. I mean, so long as they're they're not making um, decisions that are that are contrary to our culture, you know, something that's going to hurt somebody else or something that's going to be that's going to be unfair or dishonest or anything like that, and and those things are kind of a given, knowing the people that we have. But but we we have our people's backs, and we, and we always will. So those are the I I mean I kind of rambled, but yeah, no, that's, that's what I want those interactions to be like. Yeah, and I I, I took a few little notes. I think first is it's people first and you as a CEO, just your natural, your natural characteristics is you put people first and then you figure everything else out after, which, you know, in this business, it's all about the people. And, and that's really our product at the end of the day. Secondly is, is for the betterment of the company. And whether that means helping someone out, I always say there's certain conversations only the CEO can have, whether it's with an employee, with a key client or potentially with a vendor that can completely change the dynamic of a problem and come to a solution much quicker. So jumping in, not being inaccessible and willing to go and meet the client or make that phone call, it sounds like you're very accessible to your team, which I'm sure helps. And then honesty, honesty should be a given in every company. And the fact that you guys practice at such a high level from a cultural standpoint, but also just from a personal standpoint, I can tell you're Cam and David both have a strong personal brand that you bring to the company. And by putting people first, it sounds like you guys, that is maybe your your secret sauce. Maybe that is your difference maker. And it's hard to replicate. It's something that comes from generations, it sounds like. And David, going over to you on this people thing, how did your dad and, and grandfather and potentially great-grandfather, how, how did they pass on this idea of people to you and at what point did it click for you that this was the way to operate? Because I know a lot of people taking over a company will dramatically change the way it's being operated. It, it sounds like there are some really important things you wanted to keep going. Yeah, I think um, I growing up around the business and seeing the caliber of people that worked at par three, um, if you ever were to ask what is the secret sauce of our company, like Cam said, it is it is our people. I would say, you know, my dad growing up, I always just saw him do things the right way, take care of people, be generous, you know, short-term generosity is always going to pay long-term dividends. And um, I I just thought that was really special. Um, I have a very analytical brain. I love numbers. You know, if, if I was left to my own devices and, and didn't grow up in this context of, of people, you know, I'd probably be a little bit more black and white. Um, but, you know, as I've grown up and matured, I've, I've learned that, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of humility. You, you can't say, I always have the right answer. I know the right way of, of doing things. Um, you be humble with your team. You take the best of everyone and you put that together and you organize it in a way that, that works for the, 
company as a whole. Um, I feel probably my biggest motivation at work is, uh, you know, seeing a lot of employees who have been with us since the beginning or, or close to it. And um, they want to grow in their careers. And I feel a sense of responsibility taking over and representing the family um, to to watch the company grow so that they can make more money and, and progress in their career. Uh, I think that's probably above all what, what matters to me as a person and now as, as president of Par 3. Yeah, David, that is so well put. And I hope people are taking notes on this because it's it's absolutely gold. I want to comment on something when I was in your office back during the lawn and landscape tech show, I I happened to stumble in your conference room, which is fantastic training center you guys have. And on the board, there was all these credit card interest rate and how to pay your loans down and personal finance. It sounds like you were given some type of a financial education class to your team. You know, can you speak a little bit about that? I think our listeners would love to hear how you guys maybe go a little above and beyond and teach personal skills, not just work skills. Oh yeah, that's 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 funny you saw that. So, um, uh, our vice president of maintenance a couple months ago approached me and said, "Look, I always have people coming in asking how much should I put in my four hundred one k or or what should I do some personal finance question, and that's something I'm really passionate about." And he said, "Hey, you ought to consider." Uh, maybe we set up a little program or a course where, where employees can sign up and you can go through some basics of personal finance, investing, real estate, debt management, all those sorts of things. And I thought the more I thought about it, I said, man, that's that's a great use of my time. If what motivates me here at the company is to see people progress and do better. I mean, we all work really hard every single day and I w- would love for um those paychecks to turn into something for, for the 500 families that this company supports. So uh, I came up with a little personal finance course. Uh, We have maybe 30 to 40 people uh, doing it right now. We do one course a month. We'll probably run it for, you know, eight, nine months until we run out of content and then we'll recycle it and do it over um, and try to get more employees interested in it. And um, it, 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 it is exciting. You know, you see light bulbs going off and you can show if you contribute X amount to your 401k and let it compound over time. Part three is really proud of the 401k match we do. We, over the past three, four years, we've matched dollar for dollar up to the $22,500 limit. You know, we, we want to see people uh, walk out of their career here with, with, a, with a good retirement. Um, and, yeah, hopefully that's just, and we do that in a very genuine way, but I, I do think that it does show a little bit of our culture that, that that is what we value as a team. Wow. Wait, so you, just a clarifier, that was like a big thing. You guys match 401k, not, not like most people, right? It's like, oh, we do 5% or 4% of their annual salary. You guys are matching them dollar for dollar all the way up to their contribution limit. Yeah, exactly. We have, wow. you know, we always have to go through the uh, the ERISA audits every year and, and run a safe harbor plan. And sometimes the the testing is not quite that simple where you can go dollar for dollar, uh, depending on, on your income. Uh, it, sometimes that leads to us matching more than 100% or a little bit less than 100%. But on average, that's about where it equals. Wow. That's awesome. That's incredible. And 
for my myself, I actually manage a team of about 60 individuals. And I would say the average age on them is about 24 to 25 years old. And so they're just fresh out of college, just learning how what credit even means, um, getting off their parents' health insurance, all of that. And it's really cool because these these little things that you're teaching people are making a big impact on the next generation, which is also the key of why Justin and I wanted to start this podcast. So um, thank you for helping the next generation in, in doing what you're doing. I want to shift topics here a little bit. And David, I'm going to pose this question to you specifically about the Vegas market. You know, something that sets you guys apart is you're in this desirable, you know, Vegas is kind of its own planet in the rest of you, United States. Um, you know, it has its unique culture. It's constantly changing. I know right now there's so much construction around the Formula One races and, and there's always, you know, buildings going up, buildings coming down. And while that's true for other cities, I feel like Vegas has a very unique niche when it comes to like the landscaping and maintenance and all of that. So can you speak specifically about the Vegas market, some of your challenges, some of the perks that you might face when operating a company in that market? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when when a lot of people around the country uh, think of Las Vegas, they're thinking of the Strip and not much else, right? R3 was started with um, kind of the goal in mind of servicing the HOAs. What Vegas does have is an exploding HOA market, big master plan uh, developments. And within those master plan developments, there are very large HOAs. And I think Paul's initial thought was starting part three in the late 90s was seeing, you know, these large HOAs with complicated landscapes and uh, not seeing a lot of, you know, really high quality landscape companies to service those. So we were we started kind of as this premier niche for the high end HOA uh, markets. And that's, you know, turned into uh, a lot of commercial and hotel resort work. But I think at our very, very core, uh, we're an HOA maintenance company. And we've just had a lot of opportunity to grow with uh, with corporations like Howard Hughes or Olympia and and a lot of these uh, master plan communities that house the, the 2 million residents that live off the strip, right? Um, as it relates to the hotel resort work, you're, you're exactly right. You know, things come and go. Um, new concepts for for greenscapes come up often. The all the casinos are competing with each other. Who has the most curb appeal? And they are great customers for us. It's so funny because I am one that falls victim to thinking you know it's just just the strip. Even though I have plenty of friends who have lived outside of the strip, but you get this idea, this tunnel vision that Vegas is centered around the strip and. It's it's also great for other companies who may be listening to hear that there is so much more opportunity than we may realize out there. Um, you guys have found this. I, I know some of your HOAs are essentially towns within themselves. And you, you have a map in some of your conference rooms that you show these HOAs that you service and you know, you're looking at what thousands and thousands of homes. Um, I think that when our listeners are trying to put together a strategy, they need to think a little bit more outside the box, similar to how part three was structured. So thank you for sharing that. Pam, quick question on that same concept. I think a lot of people have a concern with these big properties. When you get a HOA that's 2000 units or something, 
it becomes a a giant amount of your revenue as a percentage, especially if you're a smaller company. How do you guys go about retaining these clients and making sure that you're not turning over these big accounts? Because I'm sure there's a lot of expense to start them up and get them up to to the point where you guys are starting to make some money on them. Yeah, I, I think the bigger, the better on these accounts. It seems like the bigger the account, the the less likely they are to turn over. Um, I mean, you, Maggie was talking about the size of some of the master plan communities. We've got a master plan community in Vegas that has 125,000 residents, which is probably bigger than a lot of the markets that some of the smaller landscape companies operate in. And so when you say it's a, a city, it easily very well could be a city. Um, and we have, they, this particular one has, and it's a Howard Hughes development, has four contracts over you know 20 or so thousand acres that they have developed now we love these this product where you've got a large development you have a sophisticated developer who still maintains control of the board and they don't like turnover as far as it is for us to to gear up to to find you know, 20 or 30 employees, full-time employees and all of the trucks and trailers and equipment that goes along with it, plus a yard, plus, uh, you know, job trailers and all this other sort of stuff. As hard as it is to get all that stuff put together, um, it's equally as hard, if not harder, for the customer to want to to want to make a change. They have relationships with account managers. They have relationships with the owners and the executives and the business, and they don't want to start over. And so you do a good job for them and and they're very, very uh, likely to stay with you for years that turn into decades. And um, those relationships become partnerships. And you try to you try to create that partnership right from the beginning, showing that you have their best interest in mind. You're not there to to make as much money as you can on the next enhancement job. You're there to work with them on a long term basis. Um, they've they generally on, in the HOA world, they've got, um, operating budgets and then they have reserve, uh, budgets that year over year, they're going to be spending a certain amount of money to maintain the look and feel of their communities. And the sooner that we can start working together with them on, on how they're going to spend their reserves, how they're going to maintain their aging irrigation systems, how they're going to deal with plants and trees that are, that are, um, nearing the end of their life cycle to, to keep these developments um, looking beautiful so they can continue to sell homes and, and continue to provide um, a really great city for, for better, better uh, for lack of a better term, um, for the residents. And, and those things, the, the partnerships, the relationships, the, the doing such a good job that they, they wouldn't want to consider going out to bid, are the way I think the way that you keep them and and I think that that's probably been been how we've we've succeeded in areas where maybe other companies that have shorter term goals in mind um, might have failed if a company gets in there and and is trying to hit home runs on every last enhancement job I think the customer immediately recognizes that and and it's just a matter of time before they they want to find somebody who has their best interest in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You get the, the salesy salespeople in there, the used car salesman trying to sell, you know, upgrades every single week. It kind of gets old versus maybe a partnership approach where you guys are working with the contact with the landscape committee to really put in the three to five year plan. And I'm sure the plans today must include water management and ways to reduce the amount of water that's being used 
on site. I've seen your guys' shirts at your office. You've got millions of gallons saved. You've got a ticker in one of your conference rooms. David, maybe you can talk on this if, unless Cam, you want to grab it, but can you guys just give us a quick overview of, of how you rolled out water management to your clients and, and maybe how that separates or differentiates you from some of the other companies out there? Well, it's, uh, I don't know if David was here when, when um, kind of the genesis of our program started. It, you know, we, we've always known that water management's a big deal in Las Vegas. We've been conserving water uh, since the early 2000s. Our, our water authority has been offering rebates to remove grass, to put in drought-tolerant landscapes. But um, really, the, the way that our water management program got off the ground here is we went out to, uh, we were bidding on a, on a job for uh, an older master plan community. And a guy showed up from Brightview and had a presentation that was way better than we had on water management. He talked about how he'd worked with manufacturers, how he could manage all of their clocks remotely, how he could um, he could determine evapotranspiration rates on property and, and give the exact amount of water that your plants and trees and sod need. And this guy's presentation was so much better than ours that at the end of the meeting, one of our owners at the time's like, hey, who's this guy? And it turns out he was a guy named Tom Raiden. He was out of, Salic, uh, out of Southern California. He'd been in our market with Brightview for just a couple of years at the most. And um, we kind of made the introduction then and, and said, man, we could really use a guy like that. Well, it turns out not, not shortly after that, he, he was actually working for Valley Crest at the time. Shortly after that, uh, Brightview made the merger and decided they didn't need a full-time water manager. And we were more than happy to scoop him up. And we saw that, that as much as the Valley was, um, had a focus on conserving water, the landscape companies did not. And we wanted to be at the very front of that. So um, we, we made a hire. We didn't know how we were going to justify his salary. We didn't even look at it in terms of a return on investment. We looked at it like, this is a guy that we need to set ourselves apart as the leader in this market and water conservation. And then we made the hire from there. And, and we didn't say, okay, if, if we get enough water management uh, or, or water contract, water management contracts um, under our roof, then we can pay this guy's salary. That, that wasn't the analysis. It was, hey, let's invest in this guy. Let's try to get ahead of, of the other companies in our market and, and let's do the right thing for for the valley. I mean, we we get like four inches of rain a year here. We have to conserve water. And the the years where we don't get good snowpack in in the Colorado River Basin, um, it's kind of live or die for us here in Las Vegas with water conservation. Um, and that sounds drastic, but the reality is like a couple of years ago, our, our lake levels got low enough to where they had to, to, to dig a gigantic tunnel to the deepest part of the lake to ensure that we continue to have drinking water here. And, and unless you get really great years of snowpack in the Colorado River Basin, you know, the, the landscaping water could get shut off at some point and then it could only be household use. And so for us, water conservation is, is ultra important. It's probably more important than any other part of the, or any other market in the country. And we've been the leaders and we want to be the leaders. And so when, when we looked at, you know, this is back in probably 2015, 16 or so, uh, just getting off the ground in the water management uh, arena, um, that was our, that was the thought process. 
And then, you know, as far as kind of what the day-to-day looks like, how we manage it going forward, um, David could speak uh, to that just as easily as I could. So I'll, I'll let him take a stab at it. And Yeah, David, yeah. give us, as you guys know, right, we've been exploring this idea of water management at K&D for the last three years extensively. And I think this trend of water management is really taking off. It sounds like it's been the the trend in your market for for going on almost 10 years now. Yeah, just give us a little bit of idea of how do you guys implement this fascinating idea of saving your clients money through reducing their water use? Yeah, so so like Cam said, uh, when Tom was hired, the initial thought uh, was we, we, we were going to move forward regardless. Um, ideally, right, you want to create revenue and, and build a division around water management. And uh, we did have a little bit of a tough time um, selling, you know, an additional contract because to someone who isn't really well versed in the field, if you have a customer and you say, look, we've been managing all your, your irrigation, but now we're going to do it better and we're going to charge you for it. It's a little bit of a tough sell as I know you guys have experienced that KND. Where we're at now is we don't do a lot of marketing. Um, we don't have any business developers and a cost like a water management department that's just kind of built into our overhead and we know is important to our customers um, has proved to be the right the right decision. We do have some water management contracts and we see it as a way to, to be able to pursue uh, maintenance contracts that we don't currently have if we can get our foot in the door with the water management contract and hopefully that leads to taking over the maintenance at some point. That's something that we've explored and looked at. Um, but at the end of the day, we just feel like it's a market differentiator for us and, um, it's the right thing to do for the Valley, like, like Cam said, and, um, we're kind of happy to keep it as an intangible that makes part three better. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, a that's a fact that you guys are able to grow your business to the level it's at just with no marketing, no business development, or so I said, minimal marketing, no business development, and just using that strategy. That's tremendous. That's awesome, guys. One, one question I have one kind of final question before we wrap up here is, so you mentioned this 2015, 2016 kind of pivotal moment when you introduced this new initiative to the company. Um, for our listeners, were there any other pivotal moments, pivotal moves that you've made for the company that have helped you feel like escalate or set you on a new growth trajectory over your time? Yes. Um, David, absolutely. I'll let you take that one. <laughs> okay. Um, I think, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about transparency um, in terms of numbers, I think that's been probably the, the biggest thing that we've done. Um, we don't want to ever become a cutthroat, really incentive-driven, bonus-driven company um, because there's some perverse incentives there, right, that can damage the company as a whole, the company culture, how well divisions get along with each other. But we have been very careful deploying um, that transparency and those those metrics for our bonus structure, for accountability, for the health of your portfolio. Um and now with uh, w- what we just started enacting just about a year ago is a, a leadership team where all the division heads get together. We're looking, you know, month over month at, at the financials. Everyone's kind of holding each other accountable, but also uh, cheering each other on. Um, 
I think that Aspire has been an incredible tool for us. Um, we were basically getting to the same result with a lot more manual labor um, to get these reports out to to our team. And now with Aspire, it's all just one click away and we review the dials together. And um, it's been an incredible change for us. And I think it's, it's allowed us to scale um, much more quickly and efficiently, uh, especially from an administrative side than we would be able to otherwise. Yeah, David, we, we run Aspire K&D and I couldn't agree with you more. The transparency around the dials and the KPIs allows our team to know where they're at in the game. You know, they, they can see the scoreboard every day and know where they need to be for labor variance, gross profit, whatever metric you're tracking. And as we start to wrap this episode up, I just wanted to reflect back on something. I feel that in today's age of business coaches and consultants, Every LinkedIn message you see is someone trying to help you triple your leads and double your company, right? You guys have found a what I would consider a very simple method of doing what makes sense. Kind of just, I would almost call it common sense. And when you guys say it, it, it sounds to me as it almost is like easy. It just comes to you guys second nature. But I do feel like the business world has overcomplicated and created additional complexities in business that are really unnecessary to scale and grow a successful company. And David and Cam, I think you guys are the, I want to say opposite of that, but you've just simplified the process and have gone to a no-nonsense, people-first approach. It's obviously working fantastic for you guys. So that leads right into my next question. I'm going to go to Cam first and then David. We always ask our guests to share a trade secret, something that really is an experience, learn, not a book or something you learned in, in school, but really something you just pick up through growing and building companies. Cam, you know, what's a trade secret you feel that has separated yourself and has, has got you to the point you are today? So Justin, let me answer that question by, by going back to Maggie's last question for part of it, which is she was asking about pivotal moments in a growth trajectory. And I would agree with everything that David said, but I would also add to it key hire. And when, when I say key hire, like when we went out and found the right guy to run our construction division and to build a division around him and the same with enhancement division and the same with the tree division and the same with the spray division and the same with the irrigation division, like those are, those were all turning points that allowed us to accommodate growth. And it makes it so much easier to manage a business when you have a first round draft choice in a key position. And so I would say those are, are some of the, the pivotal moments, much more so than, than water management. Water management isn't, isn't uh, moving the needle in terms of revenue or profit um, in a big way. It's just differentiating us, but, but definitely getting the right people in the right spots is. And so I would say that's um, a key part of it. The next part of the question, Justin, which is kind of like, you know, what, what didn't you learn in a book? Um, that is helping you or differentiating you and your business. And, and my thought is, is that business just really isn't that hard. Um, you don't need to be particularly smart. You don't need to be particularly um, uh, outgoing or, or um, crazy hardworking. You just show up and you do a good job and you surround yourself with the right people and you do those things consistently and you're going to have a great business. You, you don't need degrees. You don't need, you know, these just 
outstanding business developers that could sell anything to anyone. You just find the right people that, that love what they're doing and they go out and do it every day and they lead by example and, and, and it works and it, and it's a recipe that works indefinitely. Um, and so that, that's what I would say. I'm sure that's in a book somewhere. Um, I haven't read it. I, that's just what I've seen over the years here. That's fantastic. I couldn't agree with you more that that gets back to what I was saying earlier about just it's, it's not as complex as people make it sound. You just got to show up and put in the hard work and that, that secret is fantastic. So David, what do you have for us? Yeah. So our, our, like our mission statement, and I kind of cringe saying this uh, because every business book's going to want you to have a mission statement. Um, I, I do love ours. Ours is love what you do, be accountable and lead by example. At the end of the day, I'm spending as much time without more of my time with, uh, with the people I work with than my own family my wife and my daughter. And I want to show up to a place where I want to work every day. Um, and I think everyone deserves that chance. So we just try to create a culture and a company and an environment to where people want to show up to work. Um, they love what they do. They want to be accountable. And we all try to lead by example. And I think it's as simple as that. That's great. And I, I think the fact you're able to use your mission statement and your your purpose in business as your trade secret just shows how important and realistic that mission statement is. And I commend you guys for that. It's fantastic. Now you, what do you have for us? I, yeah, I would say I said it earlier on, you guys are the, the one thing that's setting you apart in your culture is that you do lead by example and you live, you do what you say and you say what you do. And I think that um, I didn't even know that was the mission statement. Maybe I should have known that was the mission statement going into this, but it really is a, a testament to who you are and you guys live that every day. So with that though, I think uh, we are going to call it a day. Thank you so much, David and Cam for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure and we will be posting, you know, where people could reach out to you if they want to to have a conversation, just, just learn more about your culture, um, in our show notes. But again, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks thank for having you. us.